For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. All right, we're in the book of Acts. The year is about 50 A.D. And we left off last week in the middle of this second journey, the second great journey undertaken by Paul. And initially, Paul and his companion Silas. Last week, we saw them work their way from Antioch down in the bottom right-hand corner all the way up northwest across Turkey. They didn't call it Turkey back then, though. Um, they, and, you know, along the way, they were encouraging the Christian communities that were there. He was making new friends, like, like he picked up Timothy and Dr. Luke along the way and brought them along as part of their traveling group. And they finally ended up at Troas, where God sent them across the Aegean Sea over to Philippi, where they planted a new church before being arrested, beaten severely, thrown in prison, and then released the next morning and begged. They, they begged Paul and Silas and his friends to leave town. And that's where we left off last week. Luke tells us, Paul and Silas then traveled through the towns of Amphipolis and Apollonia. Remember, Luke stayed behind in Philippi. Timothy is with them, though, although he doesn't always get mentioned. And he always seems to get out of the beatings, too. I don't know why that is. <laughs> but they traveled west through these two different towns here. And they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. And so they traveled west along this great Roman road called the Via Ignatia. There's still parts of it in existence today. Um, there were 30 about 30 miles between Amphipolis and Apollonia and Philippi, and so they traveled about 60 miles. They, you know, this, remember, this was the morning after they had been beaten severely. They'd probably broken multiple ribs. Uh, you can imagine there were some cracked vertebrae in there. Their back would have been a shade of deep, dark purple all the way around, wrapping around the sides, plus wherever else these, uh, the lictors would have hit them with these rods. And so... They weren't exactly in the mood to put on a backpack that next day. So it's possible they would have had horses that could have carried their stuff and that they could have ridden on, which would have meant they could have made it to each city in a day. Um, but they didn't stop in either of those towns, Amphipolis or Apollonia. It doesn't say why. Maybe there was not a synagogue there. Maybe there were other reasons. Maybe they wanted to get a little more distance from Philippi, but they come then another 30 miles, so about 90 miles total, to a city called Thessalonica. Thessalonica. This is the modern day town of Thessaloniki. There you can see, even today, you can look across the harbor out of Thessalonica, Thessaloniki, and you can see Mount Olympus, the famous mountain uh, where the gods, uh, the Greek gods were supposed to dwell. Um, it's, it was the capital city of that whole district of Macedonia back then most populous city in the region. We don't have a ton of information about it because archaeology has only been able to dig um, in very limited regions because this is like the second biggest city in Greece today. And so there's people living there and that makes it harder to go and dig up the foundation of their house. <laughs> and so there is a small area here, a um, little amphitheater, a little, um, little part of the old forum, uh, the Agora. But, you know, the... Um, we, we haven't found a ton of archaeology. There's, other, there's writings about Thessalonica and, and whatnot. But this was a very important town back then. It's a very important town today as well. Paul seemed to gravitate toward the major cities. And this was one of them. Well, when they got to town, the first thing they would have done is they would have had to find a place to stay. And we find that when they were in Thessalonica, 
They got some money from Philippi. A couple different um, uh, messengers showed up with gifts from Lydia and her group back in Philippi. But Paul got a job, and so did Silas, and probably Timothy as well. And he points this out in his letters that he writes to the Thessalonians, like here in 2 Thessalonians 3. He says, we were not idle when we were with you. No, we never accepted food from anyone without paying for it. We worked hard day and night so we would not be a burden to any of you. And so Paul, for some reason in Thessalonica, you know, there were accusations that of wandering, you know, traveling teachers that they were just in it for the money. He felt like it was important here that we work between that and what they got from Philippi and we pay our own way. And so they would offer people, uh, even the Christians that would give them, give them food, they would offer them money for it because they wanted to be above reproach. And so this, Paul was a tent maker. He made tents. And, um, you know, Jewish rabbis, they would have had to learn a trade in addition to the rest of their, their training. And so his was tent making. And this is actually the first time in scripture where it talks about Paul going out and getting a job. We're going to see he does that later on in some other cities as well. But this is also where we get the notion of uh, tent making. Sometimes missionaries will go to a city and instead of raising support from where they came from, they'll get a job there. That's called tent making. It's named after what Paul did. So they worked hard while they were in Thessalonica. But we also learn that, as was Paul's custom, he went to the synagogue service. Remember, they would go and find the Jewish synagogue where the Jews and God-fearers were gathered to read the scriptures. And he says, for three Sabbaths in a row, he used the scriptures to reason with the people. This is something we're going to see Paul doing a lot, reasoning with the people. This would have been him presenting his material from the scriptures, as well as allowing for dialogue, kind of discussion as well. Would have included both of these things. What was he doing? He explained the prophecies and proved that the Messiah must suffer and rise from the dead. Yeah, so the Jews gathering at a synagogue, anyone showing up there would have had some respect for the scriptures. The Jews would have had great respect for the scriptures. And so what Paul does is he digs into the scriptures and he opens them up. And you can imagine he's uh, maybe wincing with pain as he does so because he's still recovering from Philippi. And yet he rolls out prophecy after prophecy about this Messiah, this Messiah, the, the Savior. The Greek word for Messiah is the Christ. The Old Testament scriptures predicted that a Savior would come, a great king. They were waiting for this Messiah. But what Paul says is, look, we were wrong about the Messiah. There was something we missed. It was there the whole time, but we missed it. And so what he did was he said, the Messiah is coming. He's going to be in two parts. The second time he comes as the great king to rule the world, to eradicate evil. But the first time he comes as a humble, suffering servant who must suffer and die and rise from the dead to pay for sins. And so he rolled out passage after passage showing, arguing the case for a dying and rising and suffering Messiah, a king who dies for his people. And then he said, this Jesus I'm telling you about is the Messiah. So step one is to prove that the Messiah, according to the scriptures, had to suffer and die. Step two is to show this guy, Jesus of Nazareth, that he did all of these things that the Messiah was supposed to do. And then he's going to come back someday and he's going to do the rest of the things the Messiah is supposed to do. He taught a lot at Thessalonica about the end times and about the return of Christ as well. And so if the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead and Jesus is that 
Jesus did all those things the Messiah is supposed to do, then therefore Jesus is the Messiah. God has sent his king. And some of the Jews who listened were persuaded and they joined Paul and Silas along with many God-fearing Greek men and quite a few prominent women. So people from all kinds of backgrounds start coming to Christ, Jews, God-fearers, Greeks, and even some of the powerful women in this city, they start listening to the message and they start getting convinced and then they start telling more people and a movement starts to sweep through this city. What this shows is the importance of using the scriptures when we tell people about Christ. We can come up with our own arguments, but there's nothing like the scriptures, the power of God's living word to pierce through our defenses, our hearts, and to open up our eyes. There's only so far you can take things. You need to be able and willing to present the scriptures. And and I bet there's a lot of people in this room who could talk about how predictive prophecy, Old Testament predictions of the future, were a key factor in you coming to Christ. For a lot of others of us, myself included, they were a key factor in strengthening my faith, my faith and, make, and, and making me more of a convinced believer. And so we need to know the scriptures and we need to know how to use the scriptures, especially the prophecies, when we talk to people about Christ. And it's not that we don't bypass people's minds, but we persuade the mind. And when we do that, real change can happen. Real change can happen when people get convinced. And so people are coming to Christ. One guy was, was a guy named Aristarchus, who goes on to become a leader in the Thessalonian church, who goes on to become a lifelong friend of Paul, a guy who we're going to see several more times in the book of Acts, including who's going to be at the center of a, a riot in Jerusalem later on in this book. Another guy is a guy named Jason, who welcomes Paul into his home, although Paul and his buddies continued to pay Jason both room and board. But these, you know, this community starts to form. And after they were here probably a month or two, it says three Sabbaths, but they, they must have been here longer than that to get multiple gifts from Philippi. They were probably there a couple of months. And we see Paul talks about this event where he says, when we brought you the good news, it was only, not only with words, but with power. The Holy Spirit gave you full assurance that what we said was true. Paul said, I was up there very gingerly laying out the scriptures, and yet God's spirit was taking the word and driving it home into your hearts. He, he told you, he gave you assurance, conviction that this was true. Paul said, this was not my doing, this was God's doing. He's the one who opened the eyes of your heart, just like with Lydia at Philippi. And as, as they got convinced, they started to see real change in these people's lives. He says later in 1 Thessalonians 1, 9 and 10, he says, you guys, you turned away from your idols to serve the living and true God. Imagine living your life in the shadow of Mount Olympus, knowing these are the idols I used to worship. Knowing it's always looking down at you. You always know you could go back to that life, but you're convinced that there's a real God who's living and true, and these idols are false. God is the God who does something. And he can't be fashioned with human hands. And so he says, you guys turn from these idols and you turn to the living and true God. And Paul saw these lives changing right before him. And he said, and you're you're looking forward to the coming of God's son from heaven. And they had their eyes fixed on eternity, on this king who would come back and who would put an end to this present age. That's a, a big topic in Paul's letters with them. Well, as he saw them change, as he spent time with these people, 
He formed a deep bond of love with the Thessalonians that he writes about in his letter to them. He says in 1 Thessalonians 2, it was like a nursing mother cares for her children. That's how we cared for you. So gentle and tender. He says, we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you. Not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. And so Paul was not holding people at a distance like some tough guy, but he allowed himself to care. He really loved people. He got into their lives. He sacrificed for them, and and he also was vulnerable with his own needs, his own thoughts. And so this bond is forming, and there's a closeness here with the Thessalonians. After just a few months, it's amazing how when somebody comes to Christ, the bond that you can form and how quickly you can do it, and it's real because it's based in Jesus Christ. However, after just a few months at Thessalonica, trouble arose. We read in verse five that some of the Jews were jealous, so they gathered some troublemakers from the marketplace to form a mob and start a riot. So they went and gathered up all the unemployed riffraff hanging around the marketplace, bribed them to get a mob going. And they weren't doing anything, so they're like, hey, what, what the heck? So they get, they, the jealousy of the Jewish leaders who are seeing their, their followers turn to Paul instead and turn to Christ, they get angry. And so they strike back. This mob attacked the home of Jason, searching for Paul and Silas so they could drag them out to the crowd. Where is he? We know he's in here. But not finding them there, they dragged Jason and some of the other believers instead, and they took them before the city council, the Polytarches. I can't resist this point here from Clinton Arnold on the Polytarches, the rulers at Thessalonica. Arnold writes, earlier generations of critical scholars argued that the choice of this term, Polytarches, by the author of Acts demonstrates his unreliability as a historian. They observe that polytarchy does not appear in the Greek inscriptions of the first century or before that, whereas it does appear in second century and later literary documents. This is taken as evidence that Luke is writing well into the second century and using terminology familiar to him from his own setting. Well, archaeology has dramatically vindicated Luke's reliability on this issue. Check it out. A total of 70 inscriptions have now been discovered that make use of this term. Over three-quarters of these are from Macedonia, which is where Thessalonica was. And over half of those are from the city of Thessalonica. Some of these inscriptions date to the first century, and a few date as early as the third century B.C. Boom. You doubt me? Oh, look at this right here. Polytarchi, right there. Read it and weep. And so Luke knows what the rulers are called in Philippi. He knows the different term for the rulers in Thessalonica because he was either there as in Philippi or he had firsthand testimony from Paul. Once again, we see the historicity of Acts. Well, they drag him before the Polytarchi and they say, Paul and Silas have caused trouble all over the world and now they're here disturbing our city too. They'd heard rumors about how they'd they'd turned the world upside down, as some older translations read. And now Jason has welcomed them into his home. 
They're all guilty of treason against Caesar for they profess allegiance to another king named Jesus. Well, they were turning away from idols. This was a big area of emperor worship. They They were saying there's a king named Jesus who's gonna come someday. Our loyalty is to him. Not Caesar is Lord, Jesus is Lord. So you can kind of see where they were getting this from. Well, the people of the city, as well as the city council, were thrown into turmoil by these reports. And so the officials forced Jason and the other believers to post bond, and then they released them. Apparently, they cut a deal where they said, look, you got to get Paul out of here, and you got to put forward something significant, otherwise we're going we're gonna to come after you even harder. You got to guarantee us that you're going to get Paul out of here. And that's exactly what they did. That very night, Paul and Silas had to leave. As he says in 1 Thessalonians 2, he talks about how painful this was to be suddenly ripped away from these people. He says, Dear brothers and sisters, after we were ripped away from you, literally orphaned is what that says, we were ripped away from you for a little while, although our hearts never left you. We tried very hard to come back because of our intense longing to see you again. That was so painful. We wanted very much to come to you. And I, Paul, I tried again and again, but Satan prevented us. It's exactly what we see in the pages of Acts. And they couldn't go back to Thessalonica. There was like a ban on Paul in Thessalonica. And Paul and some other believers were going to get in big trouble if they ever headed back there. And so they leave Thessalonica And that very night, the believers sent Paul and Silas to Berea, another 50 miles west of there. Not on that Via Ignatia, that that big road that they were on. This was more off the beaten path, still a significant, influential town. And um, it says when they arrived there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now again, Berea, there's a modern day city of Berea sitting on it. So we can't excavate too much. Uh, But we, we do know there was a Jewish synagogue there. And here's what he says about the people of Berea. They were more open-minded or noble-minded in some translations than those in Thessalonica. They listened eagerly to Paul's message. They searched the scriptures day after day to see if Paul and Silas were teaching the truth. I love this description of the Bereans. They were noble-minded, open-minded. You know, today open-mindedness usually means apathetic. It's like, I'm, you know, I'm open-minded. Whatever's true for you is true for you. I don't care. They don't want to hear anything. They don't want to listen to anything. That's not what these guys were. These guys, they heard, you can imagine Paul rolling out his arguments and they're, they're writing things down. They're going home. They're opening the scrolls. They're looking through their scriptures. They're seeing, is this really true? Because that was really the thing that mattered to them. Was this true? To see if Paul and Silas were teaching the truth. And if it's true... Well, then there's very significant implications for our lives. And they had the intellectual integrity to investigate. I wonder, do you have the same kind of intellectual integrity? Have you closed your mind? Or are you open-minded? Are you truly noble-minded like the Bereans, open enough to investigate the evidence? Well, they were. And again, you see Paul persuading from the scriptures. You see Paul appealing to the mind. And you start to see response. Unfortunately, it does say, as a result, many Jews believed, as did many of the prominent Greek women and men. So again, we've got a multicultural 
group of believers here, but some Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God in Berea. And so they traveled the 50 miles to Berea to stir up trouble for him. Well, he'd seen this before, and so the believers acted at once, and they sent Paul to the coast while Silas and Timothy remained behind. They could still do some work here in this church. Apparently, Paul was kind of the the ringleader. He was the guy on the wanted posters. Those escorting Paul went with him all the way down to Athens. Look at that. And then they returned to Berea with instructions for Silas and Timothy to hurry and join him. And so he gets an escort from some Bereans to Athens, probably by ship. And then he's there in Athens, just waiting. And he says, get Silas and Timothy down here as soon as possible. Paul did not like to be alone. And here he is alone for the first time that we've seen on these missionary journeys. Alone in Athens. Athens, is there a more magnificent, famous, renowned city in all of the ancient world? It's hard to think of one. You know, when Paul came in, you know, this was the, the home of Socrates, Aristotle, Plato, and a whole academy full of the leading thinkers that provided the very foundations of much of Western thought. You know, when he came into the city, it might have looked something like this. You have the the very prominent Parthenon on top of the Acropolis, as well as a number of other temples, idols, various buildings. It was just magnificent, you know. And in, in Paul's day, it was not what it was in its golden years, but it was still renowned um, and very famous, very impressive. Even today, you can see, I mean, this is Athens today. You can see the Acropolis. You can see the, the various ruins that have been uncovered and preserved for people to see. And it's, it's just remarkable, the city of Athens. <clears throat> so Paul is here at Athens, and he's waiting for his buddies to get there. And it, it's not even, it doesn't even look like Paul was intending on doing any, any preaching here. It looks like he, this was really just a waiting place until they could move on to the next stop. And yet while he's in Athens, something starts to happen in his soul. It says he was deeply troubled by all the idols he saw everywhere in the city. It really started to bother him, deeply troubled. That's a pretty strong word. He was vexed, it was, it was, it was very worked up in his soul as he looked around and saw what was going on and it says, by all the idols he saw everywhere. That's all one word in the Greek. John Stott says this word occurs nowhere else in the New Testament and has not been found in any other Greek literature. It appears Luke made this word up to describe the pervasiveness of the idols in Athens. Although most English versions render it full of idols, the idea conveyed seems to be that the city was under them. It was like it was buried in idols. We might say it was, quote, smothered with idols, swamped by them, a veritable forest of idols. In consequence, there were more gods in Athens than all the rest of the country. And the Roman satirist hardly exaggerates when he says it was easier to find a god there than a man. (laughs) This is what the ancient world thought of Athens. And so Paul, he had heard of Athens. He had read the different thinkers that had come out of Athens. 
And now he's here seeing it maybe for the first time. What's really breaking in on him is the sadness of how lost these people were. That they're, they're making something out of stone and then they're bowing down and they're saying, oh, we worship thee. Paul says these people are wrong and they're lost and they're miserable and they're looking for God and they're, they're looking in all the wrong places. And so what does he do? First, he went to the synagogue to reason with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles. So there was a synagogue here. It doesn't seem like it was real vibrant. There doesn't seem to be much of a response at the synagogue either because then it says next, he went out and did this reasoning in the public square with all who happened to be there. And so he goes from the synagogue to the Jews out to the streets of the Agora, talking with people, dialoguing with people, sharing Christ with people, trying to reason with them. Well, he drew some attention to some of the more powerful guilds of philosophers there in that city. He had a debate with some of the Epicurean and the Stoic philosophers. So two different philosophical schools. What did these guys teach? I'll give you the short version. The Epicureans, in case you're curious, considered the gods to be so remote as to take no interest in, to have no influence on human affairs, like a deist view of God. The world was due to chance, a random concourse of atoms, and there would be no survival of death, no judgment. They were essentially materialists. This physical stuff is all that there is. The gods are not involved, and there's no life after death. So human beings should enjoy, should pursue pleasure, especially the serene enjoyment of a life detached from pain, passion, and fear. Let us eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die, they said. Nothing to fear in God, nothing to feel in death. Is that how some of us here are living our lives? It's a hopeless philosophy. What about the Stoics? They did acknowledge a supreme God, but in a pantheistic way, confusing him with the world's soul. It's like he's, he's kind of one with the creation, not distinct from it. The world was determined by fate. Human beings must pursue their duty, however painful this might be, and develop their own self-sufficiency. Even today, if someone is described as Stoic, they're kind of autonomous self-contained, holding everyone at a distance, not affected by the things around them, very rational. And so Paul's taken on both these guys at the same time, both of these groups. Well, when he told them about Jesus and the resurrection, the resurrection is often a deal stopper in these speeches and acts. They said, what's this babbler trying to say with these strange ideas he's picked up? It's a negative term, in case you can't tell. <laughs> Others said, he seems to be preaching about some foreign gods. Now, this was one of the charges leveled against Socrates many centuries earlier when he was executed for his teaching. And so, this is not a friendly audience. This is not a group of seekers. This is a hostile audience. And so they took him to what NLT renders the high council of the city, all one 
two-word phrase, which in some scriptures, uh, some of our translations, the Areopagus, or what you may know as Mars Hill. Mars Hill was originally a place, and then it was the council that met at that place. So these would have been the elite of Athens. Mars Hill today, if you look at the Acropolis here, it's this, it's this rock outcrop northwest of the Acropolis. If you look down from the, the Acropolis, you can kind of see down on top of this hill, you can see people on there walking around. Um, you can go right up to it. You can see the stairs right up to the top. There's people up there. Um, it's a tourist attraction today, Mars Hill. And um, if, if you stand on Mars Hill and you look up at the Parthenon, up at the Acropolis, this is what you see. And so all the events that follow here take place in the shadow of this great temple where there were more gods than people, more idols than you could count. Come and tell us about this new teaching, they said. You know, you're saying some rather strange things, and we want to know what it's all about. You need to answer here. And Luke tells us, by the way, it should be explained that all the Athenians, as well as the foreigners in Athens, they seem to spend all their time discussing the latest ideas. He didn't really have a high view of the Athenians. And so Paul steps up before this council, and he addressed them as follows. Men of Athens, I notice that you're very religious in every way. It's actually hard to tell if this is a compliment or not. It can also mean you guys are too superstitious. It's the, word, the word can go either direction, and it's, it's not clear if he's confronting or trying to butter up his audience. Uh, it is possible to be very religious and not open-minded at all, though. You can be very religious and very wrong, like these guys were. And yet they did have something that drew them to God. They knew something more was out there. He says, you know, as I was walking along, I saw your many shrines. And one of your altars, I noticed, had this inscription on it. It said, to an unknown God. So you'd have all the different temples and the idols and statues and names. And then this one, you come along and there's no name on it. And it just says, to an unknown God. Where did this come from? Well, if you want the background on this, you'd have to go to Diogenes Laertius, The Lives of Eminent Philosophers, Volume 1, page 110, from the 3rd century A.D. Don Richardson talks all about this in his book, Eternity in Their Hearts. Here's what happened. In the 6th century B.C., so 500 years before Paul arrives in Athens, this plague breaks out in the city. People are sacrificing to all their different gods. The plague is not subsiding. They, they send this dude named Nicias up to the Oracle at Delphi. And they say, what do we do? And the priestess there says, you need to make a sacrifice to the God. And he's like, we've done our sacrifices to all the gods. She says, no, you've missed a God. There's one who you have not sacrificed to. So he comes back to Athens and they're like, what did she say? And he's like, we missed one. 
And they're like, well, what do we do? And he's like, she told me to send a messenger to Crete and to find a man there named Epimenides. And he'll know what to do. And so they go and they get Epimenides and they bring him back to Athens. And he says, you guys need to set up altars to these unknown gods. And so they set up a series of different altars. They offer their sacrifices and lo and behold, the plague subsides. Well, these altars just sat there for centuries until Paul walks into Athens and finds them. You see, these people, they knew there was something more out there. They knew there was something they were missing. They had almost an infinite number of gods, and yet they knew this still isn't enough. There's something we're missing. And Paul says, I know what you're missing. He's appealing to that sense that they had, that there's more. And he says, this God whom you worship without knowing, that's the one I'm telling you about. He says, he's the God who made the world and everything in it. No, Paul says, stoicism is wrong. He's not one with the world. He's not part of the world. He made the world. He's distinct from the creation and rules over it. Since he's Lord of heaven and earth, he doesn't live in man-made temples like that. Human hands can't serve his needs. He has no needs. That was the whole concept behind paganism. You're offering sacrifices to the gods to feed the gods, to try to get something from them. I scratch your back, you scratch mine. And so Paul says, paganism is wrong. Your whole system with your idols and your temples, you're wrong. This God I'm telling you, if he gives breath and life to everything, he satisfies every, our every need. You're still alive today because of his goodness towards you. From one man, he created all the nations throughout the whole earth. The Bible calls him Adam, his wife Eve, the common descent of the entire human race. Not just creatures, spiritual beings made in the image of God. We're not here by chance. We're not highly evolved monkeys. We're much more than that. He decided beforehand when these, these different nations should rise and fall, he determined their boundaries. He's sovereign over history. And his purpose was for the nations to seek after God. Why did God create you? Paul says, to live and to seek God. That is your purpose. You're looking for meaning in your life. This is where it is. This is what you were designed for. He says they could perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, although he is not far from any one of us. And so on the one hand, we're, we're blind. It's like we're groping about in the dark. He calls this general revelation in Romans 1. He says, we can look at the creation and we can see certain things about God. We talked about this in his speech at Lystra. And yet so many of you here, he says, are groping about blindly in the dark. And yet he says, he's not far from any one of us. He says, Epicureans are wrong. That God is not distant, uninvolved, far away. No, he's right there. 
You can turn to him at any time. You can have a relationship with God. Do you believe that? And then he says, for in him we live and move and exist. He's kind of getting poetic here. In fact, he says, as some of your own poets have said, we're his offspring. What's he doing here? He's quoting two different ancient Greek writers. This first one, I'll give you the whole stanza because I think it's pretty interesting. This is a 6th century BC. This is 500 years beforehand. This guy... He writes, they fashioned a tomb for thee, O high and holy one. These Cretans, always liars, evil beasts, idle bellies. Does that sound familiar? Paul quotes that in Titus chapter 1 to Titus, who's in Crete. He says, but thou art not dead, thou livest and abidest forever. For in thee we live and move, and we have our being. Written by the Cretan poet Epimenides, the same guy who came to Athens and helped them set up this statue to the God unknown. They would have known this story. They would have known Epimenides. He's quoting their own stuff to them. He says, as some of your own poets have said, we're his offspring. Who's he quoting here? A Stoic philosopher to the Stoics. So Paul's a Stoic to the Stoics. Third century BC. And he's not saying that the Stoics are right or Epimenides was right. What he's saying is, you guys have been groping around and you've, you've de- declared, you've concluded, you've discovered some things that are true. You're not completely wrong in all respects, but it's incomplete. And we need to take it the rest of the way. And I'm here to explain to you the rest of the story. God has sent me here. We're his offspring, made in the image of God, is what Paul is saying there. There's something special about humans, and our God-likeness. And he says, since this is true, we shouldn't think of God as an idol designed by craftsmen from gold or silver or stone. No, paganism's wrong. Idols are wrong. God overlooked people's ignorance about these things in earlier times. Look, the times of ignorance are over. You don't know, but now you do. And he says, now he commands everyone, everywhere to repent and turn to him. Are you a Stoic, he says? Repent and turn to God. Are you an Epicurean? Repent and turn to God. Are you just a plain old country pagan? Repent and turn to God. Whatever your worldview, whether you're in first century Athens or 21st century America, you need to turn to God. The times of ignorance are over for everyone here in this room. You've seen the truth. You can't, you can't plead ignorance anymore. God has revealed something incredible to you. And you better hurry up because he set a day for judging the world with justice by the man he has appointed. And he proved to everyone who this is by raising him from the dead. And so what does Paul say? He says, paganism and Stoicism and Epicureanism are all wrong. And I'm here to tell you the truth. As declared in the scriptures, as partially discovered even by some of your own thinkers, that longing you have in your heart that you've missed something, 
that your sacrifices and your religions are not enough. It's because they're not. And because there really is a God. And you need to turn to him. And he has made this possible by the man he has appointed, the man who will judge the world, who will put an end to all evil, the man he raised from the dead after his death on the cross for your sins, Jesus Christ. Well, when he mentioned the resurrection, this was a little too much for them to take. A guffaw breaks out among the crowd. Some laughed in contempt. Resurrection, Jesus. Who is this, this babbler? Look at him going on again. There were some that said, we want to hear more about this later. I don't know if that was like genuine or just like a nice way to end the, the speech. You should call me sometime. And it says that ended Paul's discussion with them. That's the last we hear of his time in Athens. Not a real receptive city. There were a few, I guess. Some did join him and became believers. Dionysus, a member of the council, one of the, one of the people who were there on the, the council of, of the Areopagus became a believer. So did this woman named Damaris. There were others. It wasn't totally fruitless, but we learn in 1 Corinthians 1, he didn't baptize anyone there. It doesn't appear to have been a Christian community started there. There's no letter to the, the Christians at Athens, like we have the Corinthians and the Philippians and the Ephesians and the Colossians. But Paul had said his piece and he moved on. He wasn't wanted here. They may have forced him out of town. It's not clear, but uh, he does join back up with Timothy and with Silas and he moves on. Paul left Athens to Corinth. Let's just try to draw a few conclusions here from Paul's speech at Mars Hill and his time with the Thessalonians. What have we seen tonight? We've seen that Paul knew the scriptures, right? He knew how to use them to tell people about Jesus. And we need to learn how to use the scriptures. We need to learn the scriptures and learn how to use them as well. Both leading people to Christ as well as nurturing people in their faith. We cannot bypass the mind. People must become convinced, and it takes time. And the scriptures are the fastest path to building convictions. Secondly, Paul knew the culture. We see here, he's quoting the the book of Isaiah just like he's quoting the the book of Epimenides and the the poets from the 6th century and this this other author from the 3rd century BC, guys that they knew. He didn't just tell them they were wrong. He told them why they were wrong. He told them where they went wrong. He told them how close they got, and he connected the dots the rest of the way to Jesus Christ and the biblical worldview. We need to be students, not just of the scriptures, but of culture. And we need to think critically about what we're hearing in the culture, because we can just be conformed to the world, or we can be students of the world that are used by God to transform this world. We see that Paul allowed himself to care and to love. What was it that he talks, when he talks about the Thessalonians, he talks about his deep love for them and how he hated to be ripped away from them. He was not holding people at arm's length. We see him in Athens, and he's so upset by the fate of these people that he cannot keep his mouth shut. It's like a fire welling up inside of him. He was in with people. He cared about people. And that flowed right into his ministry and his effectiveness in people's lives. 
You have to let yourself care. Love is at the heart of Christianity. And without that, we're a clanging gong. We're a noisy symbol, Paul tells the Corinthians. And finally, Paul trusted God to play his role. Obviously, he's using scripture. He's trusting God's word to have a mighty effect in people's lives. He did what he could there, but then when he was ripped away, he prayed for them. He did his best, but ultimately, he had to, he had to entrust them to God. Same thing at Athens. He did his best. He did his part, but he knew that only God could bring conviction into people's lives. He's saying the same things at Athens that he did in Thessalonica, and yet at Thessalonica, for some reason, it landed with power and conviction of the Holy Spirit. And so he left maybe a little dejected after his speech at Mars Hill, rejected by the academy, I guess you, if you could say. And yet his speech, though ineffective at the time, has become perhaps the greatest, most famous speech ever delivered in Athens. How could Paul know that 2,000 years later his speech would be inscribed on a plaque attached to the side of Mars Hill that millions of people would stream through every year reading about the Creator God who created us to live and to seek Him. Yeah, Lord, I love that we're in a church full of thinkers and that we're in a church that's engaged with this culture and is passionate about reaching the lost. God, I pray we'd never lose any of those qualities, but instead I pray that we would continue to push ourselves, Lord, and our understanding and, and grasp of the scriptures and our understanding and grasp of culture and our love for people. I pray, too, that we would, we would not just hold each other at arm's length, but that we would give over our hearts, Lord, to both brothers and sisters in Christ as well as to those we're reaching out to, the, the world around us. And I pray, God, that anybody who's here tonight who has been groping around in the darkness, Lord, that they would believe that what Paul said that you're right there, right, right there waiting for us to turn to you, to call out to you, that you want a relationship, Lord, and that they would experience a relationship with the God of the universe. Amen. This study was recorded at Xenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.